Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And today, it is going to be all about New Hampshire. Going to be probably a fairly uh, short episode, shorter than usual, because we just had a recent episode. And I'm pretty much caught up in anything I wanted to talk about. Got one last thing I'm going to tack on at the end of this episode that I wanted to talk about that I forgot about in the last one. But other than that, let's dive in here to the results of the New Hampshire primary. All right, we can see once again that Donald Trump won the Republican New Hampshire primary pretty comfortably. We were talking about this in the last episode at the end of the Iowa caucuses. Considering how poorly Nikki Haley did in the Iowa caucuses, my hopes for her to pull out a victory here in New Hampshire were pretty slim, <laughs> pretty slim. And honestly, it seems like this is lining up pretty much with what the polls were saying going into the primary. They were a little bit closer. We could see maybe a plus eight, plus nine. But when all things are said and done, it looks like it's going to be plus 11, plus 12 for Donald Trump. But looking at these results here, it's pretty difficult to come to any other conclusion besides it's Jover. The Republican primary, it's done. It's a wrap. So we got Donald Trump, same as the last time, same as the time before that, third time's a charm. And a few days running up to the primary, we of course had old meatball Ron <laughs> giving up, gave up the ghost as the kids like to say, and uh, threw in the towel and decided it was over. He is done. And honestly, one of the things I want to talk about with this result here and the end of Ron DeSantis's, maybe it's not the end of Ron DeSantis's, career but it's a pretty substantial blow his political career is like bleeding out on the pavement and uh it's not looking so good meatball ron got clobbered in this primary totally dumpstered by donald trump he got absolutely trounced and absolutely killed and one of the things that we really learned about ron DeSantis out of this primary is he is not very good at retail politics and if you guys don't know retail politics is like that ability for a politician to shake your hand and build rapport and make it make you feel like, at least in that moment when you're talking to them, that you matter to them and your, your issues and your thoughts are being heard. And I think this is definitely a key skill if you want to be a politician, particularly in the modern era, but really ever since time immemorial, but maybe even more so now with the rise of social media and people constantly online and constantly engaged with what's going on, you need to look like and appear that you actually enjoy being around people and talking to people and hearing people. And that is one thing that poor Meatball Ron, he just couldn't do. He just couldn't bring up the enthusiasm, couldn't bring out the charisma to make it. Uh, there you go. See what I mean? I like the little automatic updates. Anyway, couldn't really bring out the charisma, couldn't really connect with people because it always, he always seemed like so wooden and so awkward. And like when he was actually talking to people and especially if they would ask him like difficult questions, right? This is, and it's weird, like this is a guy who made his political career off of answering difficult questions from the media and getting all these kind of media sparring moments. But when it came to more difficult questions like surrounding the actual logistics of how he intends to become president or even like actual difficult questions regarding more internal right-wing politics, the guy just like, totally fell apart. So just unbelievable, unmitigated political disaster. I don't think anybody thought that Ron DeSantis would be this bad. Like genuinely, this might be the worst political campaign 
I've seen anybody run in my lifetime. Regardless, though, one of the things I've really noticed about American politics is that it seems like when they get these governors to run, people always really suck them off and they think they're going to be like the top tier candidates, but they're always junk. All the governors that always run are terrible. Of course, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, and even on the Democratic side, you had, oh my God, I really hope Gavin Newsom doesn't run because not only is he just a junk tier politician, he is the embodiment of, at least in my opinion, that overrated governor archetype. If he actually runs, he's just going to be a total joke, in my opinion. But regardless, my opinion, by Scott Walker, that was another one. The former governor of Wisconsin, you might, that was a little bit, that's, that was a little bit older than 20, 2010, 2020 era. Regardless, the point here is that these governors always blow chunks when they actually try and run. The last one that really won and got any kind of traction was, of course, George W. Bush, former governor of Texas, of course. And ever since then, and, and realistically, he only got that position because of his daddy, right? Because his daddy used to be the president. Regardless, though, like ever since then, it's all been downhill for governors on the national stage of American politics. So farewell, Ron. You will not be missed. But looking into Nikki here, and I really think that, of course, she's going to keep running. She's going to keep going. There's no reason for her not to. Besides, of course, wanting to avoid the personal embarrassment of continually being destroyed. Because the one thing about New Hampshire, you guys have to remember, is New Hampshire is an open primary. So anybody can register as a Republican, regardless of their party affiliation, a few days before the primary and get in there and vote for whoever they choose, which obviously gives Nikki Haley the best chance of gaining some sort of success here last night. Well, I guess still tonight, depending on your perspective. Regardless, though, because this was an open primary, it gave her the absolute best chance of securing some sort of victory tonight. And because she couldn't under these very favorable conditions, it doesn't look like she's going to secure. I would be shocked if she comes even close to within single digits of securing victories in any state moving forward. Of course, the next state coming up is going to be South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state. And not only is she going to get obliterated in that state, she's going to get obliterated by a significantly larger margin than she was tonight because South Carolina is, I'm not sure if it's a closed primary or semi-closed primary, Regardless, I know it's not New Hampshire, so you're going to have much more Republican hardliners voting in that primary, and who are Republican hardliners going to vote for? Donald Trump or Nikki Haley? I'll, I'll leave you to decide that one for yourselves. So again, going back to that theoretical potential black swan event, some sort of legal kneecapping of Donald Trump, this is the only reason why Nikki Haley continues to be in this race, is the offshoot chance that uh, something will take out Donald Trump and prevent him from running. And of course, unless uh, that happens, he's going to win and he's going to run in the general election. So I'm not surprised that Nikki Haley says she's not dropping out. Uh, I'm sure there's at least some pressure within uh, Republican, within the Republican annals of power for her to drop out. But then again, she has the backing of a lot of wealthy donors who probably want her to stay in. Again, just in case we have this kind of theoretical potential Donald Trump implosion. But as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I'm sure many political observers are concerned, and if you're watching this, and I'm sure if you've been following this election, as far as you're concerned, this Republican primary is over. Donald Trump is the nominee. 
and it looks like he's going to be the nominee running again in the general election later this year. Now, before we move on here, I do want to spend some time and I want to talk a little bit about the Democratic primary here because fuck you, New York Times. Seriously, I hate you and everything that you stand for trying to make me make an account. You can go to hell. All right, so moving into the Democratic New Hampshire primary, this was a hilarious little clusterfuck that we had going on. So what's happening here is apparently the Democratic Party has decided that they're going to shake up the structure of their primaries, making South Carolina to be the first state in the primary structure, moving Iowa and New Hampshire back in the process. New Hampshire decided, F you guys, we refuse to do that. We're holding our primary regardless of what you guys think. And the Democrats are like, now your primary uh, results don't matter. They don't count. And of course, New Hampshire is just doing what they want to do anyway. And good on them. I loved it. If there is anything in the world that holds the Democratic Party back from being all that it could be and accomplishing all the good that it could accomplish, it is the Democratic Party establishment. Talk about a corrupt political establishment that needs to be completely reformed. So regardless, good on New Hampshire for standing up to the Democratic establishment. And what happened because of this whole clusterfuck is that Joe Biden was not actually able to appear on the ballot for the New Hampshire primary. This is why you see all these unprocessed write-ins as the third listed result, because, because of the fact that Joe Biden wasn't on the ballot, you actually had to physically write Joe Biden in to vote for him. So it's assumed that all of those unprocessed write-ins are actually for Joe Biden. So regardless, though, it looks like he's still going to win this pretty comfortably, despite this whole snafu. There was like some rumblings out there. Oh my God, is Joe Biden going to lose the New Hampshire primary? Because it is a significant hurdle to have your name as a write-in rather than actually on the ballot. But I thought that would be a very unlikely scenario that he would lose the New Hampshire Democratic primary. But it's still funny nonetheless. And if he had lost, that actually would have been even funnier. So speaking of the general election, let's wrap up our talk about American politics with a little bit of a once again discussion of the state of the race here after the New Hampshire primary. As we can see, it looks like Donald Trump continues to gain ground on Joe Biden. And at this point, I've been talking to a lot of left-wing people, and they have been uh, a little bit dejected, a little bit depressed, and they're feeling like things are not looking so good like going into the future. And obviously, I'm not here to say everything is uh, sunshine and rainbows. But I do think that right now we are being a touch bit too pessimistic. And I'll tell you why. One is the campaign, at least on the Democratic side, really doesn't seem to have started, despite the fact that, in my opinion, it should have started long ago. They haven't really ramped up the actual political machine. And usually once the political campaigning starts and people start putting ads and making speeches and things really get going, things usually tighten up. Another thing I want you guys to remember is that especially during a primary season when one party is having a primary and another isn't really, that actually generates a lot of positive media and vibes and attention for that party. If you guys remember, like back in 2020 during the uh, Democratic primary when they were going to decide who was going to face up against Donald Trump, the polls in that time were riding high for the Democrats, or excuse me, more, more so riding low for the Republicans and for Donald Trump. And a lot of people at the time were saying like, oh yeah, it's over. 
it's done. It's all over. But of course, things tightened up as you went into the general election. And while the Democrats ultimately ended up winning, it was not by those margins that it looked like at the start of the year. So yes, well, of course, it does look like Donald Trump is racking up large margins. You have to remember that he is appealing to his own audience. The people who are voting in these primaries are not general election voters. And in a general election, I just, I cannot see Donald Trump winning over the swath of independence that he needs to in order to actually become president. And especially with the key demographic, which I think is going to decide this election in 2024, which is going to be women, particularly suburban women, one of the most notoriously fickle demographics within the American political system. And when push comes to shove, I do think that that fickle demographic will break for Biden. One of the things, though, is that if Nikki Haley had actually won this nomination, those independents, I think, would have broken for her rather than for Trump. Because in my opinion, both of these candidates have a serious problem with women. But again, when push comes to shove, even though both these candidates have serious problems with women, the fact of the matter is that Donald Trump represents the Republican Party and all the baggage that comes with the abolishment of Roe v. Wade and some of the crazy socially conservative policies that, generally speaking, women aren't a fan of. So despite the fact that both these people, that both these guys, right, Donald Trump obviously has those numerous affairs, always cheating on his wife, the grabbing by the pussy remark. Joe Biden has his uh, numerous sexual allegations, his weird hair sniffing thing, all the awkward moments he has around women. Both these guys definitely give off creepy vibes but the fact of the matter is that because trump has an r next to his name women are probably going to break more for biden but if you replace trump with a candidate like nikki haley i think again that demographic pushes more towards her because she's a lot more moderate on uh, abortion and of course she is herself a woman and this was part of the reason you'd see those like crazy uh, general election poll numbers where like nikki haley would be winning by five ten percent or what have you so when push comes to shove, I do think that still Joe Biden will be able to pull it out and be able to beat Donald Trump. I'm not pulling the alarm bells just yet. Remember, at this time last year, everybody thought, oh man, Donald Trump is done. There's no way he can come back. Now he's leading in the general election polls. A year is a long time, everybody. And throughout this year, I expect a lot of crazy shit is going to happen, just like in the last year. And that is going to wildly change the trajectory of the general election in the United States. I can't, when it comes to quotes that really stay with me in terms of describing the function of politics and how political powers and apparatuses work, one of the most poignant and I think a descriptive quotes actually comes from Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, where he said that politics is all about timing. And to me, no truer words have ever been spoken about the political craft than that because when the election happens it really is a snapshot of how the people feel in that moment at that time and so the question is in that moment at that time at the end of 2024 how are people going to be feeling are they going to feel the exact same way that they do now but as history would show people's opinions tend to fluctuate at least the people the people in the margins who will decide the election and overall, public opinion fluctuates. So we will see. Although, if I were the Biden team, I would not be happy with the way things are looking right now. So don't get me wrong. I'm not exactly enthusiastic, but I'm not super pessimistic 
just yet. And that's one of the things, though, that is worrying to me is the energy gap right now, is that people on the right seem much more energized, particularly than, particularly in America, than people on the left. And that is definitely not a good metric. Before we move on to the secondary topic of the episode, I just want to talk about, I saw this little article from NPR, and I just don't know why. I thought it was just so laughably basic. Five takeaways from the New Hampshire primary. The clock is ticking on Nikki Haley's campaign. No way. Thank you, geniuses. Thank you for describing that to us. We had no idea. Number two, is Haley really going to want to endure another month of Trump attacks? So dumb. Uh, Haley's electability argument isn't resonating with Republicans. Okay, we figured that one out 15 months ago. The general election unofficially begins now. Certainly, it's the clear case for Biden and Trump's campaigns. And uh, unfortunately, I think that they are right on that one. And uh, for a country that says it doesn't want a Trump-Biden rematch, it sure seems like it's getting that pretty easily. Yes, unfortunately. So let's move on to the next topic of the episode. I don't want to take this one is going to be much smaller, not going to take up as much time. But I do want to talk about one of the most important elections that just totally slipped under the radar for me. That I wanted to talk about this last week, but I forgot to bring it up. And now we're going to talk about it today which is, of course, the 2024 Taiwanese presidential election. And again, this to me was one of the most important elections to watch for in 2024. And it just completely right under the radar for me. But let's jump into it. So the reason I believe this uh, election is going to be so important in particular is because it's going to signal the foreign policy direction of Taiwan, which in uh, reaction to that, the People's Republic of China is going to decide their own policy in reference to Taiwan, which could be a key decision point in uh, geopolitical relations moving into the future. So just a very brief recap here is that within Taiwan, they have two major political parties, although this time the third party here, this is the Taiwanese People's Party. They're considered to be a center-left centrist party trying to run as a in-between differentiator between the two major uh, political parties. But the thing is, that within Taiwanese politics, these political parties aren't so much differentiated on their ideology, but more so in their stance towards China. So the party which won is the DPP, which is the Democratic Progressive Party of Taiwan. And this party is considered to be staunchly anti-Chinese, very much so in favor of Taiwanese independence, definitely in favor of withdrawing and moving away from relations towards the mainland these guys have been in power since 2016 the previous president the incumbent president sang wen had to step down because just like in the united states the president can only run for two terms she led her party to a comfortable win for two terms and now the standard bearer for the taiwanese progress party is excuse me lai ching tae who was the vice president. So obviously he was in a good position to become the standard bearer and he was able to lead his party to another victory. It's third consecutive victory on the island of Taiwan. And as we can see, this was a pretty decisive victory. The major party that they are fighting against is the Kuomintang, which is the Chinese Nationalist Party. This was the party founded by Chiang Kai-shek, interestingly. And of course the party which fought against the communists in the civil war although over time they have become much more conciliatory in their stance towards China. 
in comparison to the DPP. So what we're looking for, is this going to be an election where the Taiwanese people decide to face towards China or face away from China? They have very clearly and decisively to decided to continue their stance of facing away from China. And just to look at it briefly, although we do see that this was not as a decisive victory as it was last time, we can see that the DPP won very comfortably. However, this time we had a third place contender, right? We had a third party who did very well, considering that this is really their first kick at the can in Taiwanese politics, but it simply wasn't enough. And we will see the DPP reign for yet another term. So what does this mean all in the realm of geopolitics? Well, basically, in my opinion, this increases the chance that China is going to do something against Taiwan, is going to pull some sort of military or political action against them to try and finally annex the island. You know, how much does this increase the likelihood? Like 5% type of thing, right? So we're, we're not like, yes, definitely. It's coming, guys. Get ready. World War Three. Make sure you got your bayonets and pitchforks ready to go. But for China, they really don't have another window to attack Taiwan. I think by the time that uh, the next election happens in Taiwan, their window for realistic action and military action against the island will have closed. So if they're going to do something, right, we're looking at the next four years to be a very high possibility if something's going to happen. And then if nothing happens, then I think Taiwan can probably rest easy. And if you guys remember, when we talked about a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan, we talked about how it would take place. A lot of American generals have been sounding the alarm that 2025 is the year well, in 2024, we saw that once again, Taiwan is choosing to face it away from China. We will see how things develop in the American election. Although, honestly, I really don't think it matters who wins Trump or Biden in terms of the American fall policy towards China. I think that both of them will remain pretty staunchly anti-Chinese. I don't think any of them are very much so interested in any type of thawing of relations with the People's Republic of China. So I really don't think who wins is going to alter China's opinion, but what they will probably be looking for is, is it going to be another clusterfuck like it was in 2020? Is this going to be, is there going to be some sort of issue with the uh, election? Is there going to be political unrest? If something like that happens, then you better believe China might, they might pull the trigger, right? They might decide this is it. This is our opportunity. We're going for it. So I think more than who wins the actual election, that is what uh, China is looking at. Is there going to be political instability following it? But regardless, though, with this election and a very comfortable uh, win, it shows that Taiwan is not interested in any kind of relations or any kind of serious relations with the People's Republic of China. And due to that fact, if China is serious about its rhetoric and reclaiming Taiwan, they're not going to be able to do it diplomatically with the current government that uh, Taiwan has. So we'll see. We'll see. Like I said, nothing's for certain. But with this election, potential invasion just got a little bit more likely. Not a huge amount, but a little bit more. So here we go. This is our feel-good story. We haven't done one in a little while. And I wanted to do one focusing on sodium batteries. And this is a pretty cool technology that is emerging. And if you guys haven't been keeping tabs on it, it's definitely something to be keeping tabs on because I think that this kind of has the potential uh, to be not so much like this isn't going to radically change the type of technology that we're familiar with in terms of electric vehicles. 
but it will change a lot of the more economic and in addition to that environmental aspects of it. So this article will give us a little bit of differentiation between the two types of batteries here. But to give you a little bit of backstory, effectively the type of battery that we use in almost everything from our cell phones to electric cars and even things like vape pens and smaller electronics are predominantly lithium ion batteries. These are a tried and tested and reliable technology. That being said, though, it feels like lithium ion batteries have reached their maximum point of development. I think the, the technology has been all but tapped out. And some of the very key disadvantages to the lithium ion batteries as we understand them today are one in disposability. And this is one of the key kind of really dirty secrets about uh, green technology, at least right now is how difficult it is to dispose of lithium ion batteries and deal with them once they have, you know, run their course effectively. They're very difficult to, to recycle as well. And in addition to that, there is uh, safety concerns with the lithium ion battery because there's a barrier effectively keeping the two sides at bay from one another. And if that barrier within the battery ever gets pierced, the battery will literally explode. And this is not hyperbole. This is not figuratively. If you ever had an instance, I've actually had an instance where I've had a, a vape pen while it was charging literally explode in the charger because over time it was an older pen. I guess over time that barrier had eroded and it just gave out one day and just blew up. And you don't hear so much about this happening as much as it used to because they've gotten it figured out. But especially like when you'd have like earlier bits of technology that were using lithium ion batteries uh, you'd hear about them like potentially exploding or like headsets exploding cell phones exploding that's all to do with the barrier within the battery being ruptured so what sodium ion batteries are a replacement for lithium ion batteries they're not so much more an effective technology in fact in most cases they are slightly less or maybe even significantly less effective than our traditional lithium ion batteries but they have advantages being a made of materials which are significantly more abundant and b much more environmentally friendly when it comes to recycling and disposing of these materials so let's with that backstory in mind let's check out this article here from this is from clean technica it says sodium ion batteries challenge lithium ion batteries on cost and supply chain this is from about a week ago in the search for a new low cost alternative to the familiar lithium ion battery is heating up in all sorts of different directions. One key area of interest is in sodium. The earth abundant ingredient makes up about 40% of simple table salt. Sodium is heavy and tough. So is salt for that matter. Nonetheless, sodium batteries are relatively inexpensive and free from thorny supply chain issues that are beginning to burst into the mainstream market. And this is of course, one of the issues again with lithium ion batteries being made of materials such as lithium, which are much less abundant than sodium. It means that obviously you have to work potentially with other countries, uh, create an extensive supply chain to get lithium from a point where it can be extracted to the point where it can actually be manufactured. Anyway, continuing. Sodium batteries for just about everything. Sodium is abundant, all right. The Royal Chemistry Society calls it the sixth most common element on Earth, making up 2.6% of the Earth's crust. That's all well and good, but sodium hits a stumbling block in terms of batteries for electric vehicles. Where lower weight and smaller size are at a premium, sodium is a heavier element than lithium, 
with an atomic with an atomic weight 3.3 times greater than lithium. Notes Shazan Siddiqui of the research firm ID Tech Tech X that puts sodium at a disadvantage right there. Though Siddiqui has some things to say about that. However, it is important to note that lithium or sodium in a battery only accounts for a small amount of the cell mass and the energy density that is defined by the electrode materials and other components in the cell, he said. Hence, while current sodium ion batteries have relatively low energy densities, there is potential to increase this in the coming years. It looks like the coming years are now. Last fall, Clean Technica took note when the Swedish battery maker Northvolt hooked up its sodium ion battery with the Chinese electric vehicle maker BYD. And just a brief pause moment here. Chinese electric vehicle BYD has recently this year surpassed Tesla as the world's largest manufacturer of electric vehicles. I think that this is very interesting. Well, actually, we'll delve into it a touch right now. The main reason I think China is, is ramping up its electric vehicle production and also looking particularly to the sodium ion batteries is not necessarily uh, like it's some sort of technological breakthrough that's happening in China. This is a move based off necessity. We've talked about Chinese energy woes, how they are very vulnerable to being cut off from uh, oil sources in some sort of potential war or escalation. However, if you have more and more electric vehicles, that becomes less of an issue you have to worry about. In addition, because uh, China, yes, it has many rare earth minerals. This does not include a huge abundance of lithium. So they would still have to look to other sources to continue to uh, construct their electric vehicles. They have sodium ion batteries. That no longer becomes an issue. China becomes much more, or at least the Chinese energy grid and energy independence seems a lot more feasible. They're a lot less vulnerable to those kind of disruptions. So this, to me, it's more of a move that's fueled by necessity rather than some kind of amazing technological breakthrough or anything like that. China is investing heavily in electric vehicles. If you guys like want to kill an afternoon or something like that, you should go look up these wild electric vehicles that they sell on these Chinese websites and you could buy them or bring them over here, but they're never street legal. They have things like horseless carriages because like, why not, right? They can't go very fast is the thing. They just really, I would think that's more from some sort of tourist attraction, some sort of theme park or whatever. But the point is they have all these kind of crazy electric vehicles that they've been producing. And uh, yeah, so they're going all in on electric vehicles and it's mainly driven out of a want to lessen their dependence on foreign oil. Anyway, back to the article here. Now here comes a U.S. startup, Aculon, looking to fuel more sodium fire. If all goes to plan, Aculon uh, predicts a production of new sodium ion batteries uh, beginning at a pilot scale this spring and hit, expected to hit a scale of 2 gigawatt hours by the middle of this year. Importantly, sodium ion batteries are free from conflict-heavy materials or premium input materials like lithium carbonite or cobalt, increasing their sustainability profile among advanced battery chemistries, Aculon stated in a press release January 4th. Aculon already has a wide field of energy storage experience under its belt and is looking into a wide range of applications for the new battery. And that is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand about green technology and what we're trying to do in our transition towards green technology 
Most people think that our stumbling block is the efficiency of solar and wind and stuff like that. It's not so much the efficiency of these technologies and their ability to produce energy. It's our ability to store it and then send it out to the people that need it. Solar power is all well and good until nighttime comes. And then what are you going to do then? You need to have storage in order to store the the energy that you create during the day and then obviously distribute that during the night. And the thing is that creating that technology on a scale of millions and millions of people in a city is extremely difficult. LA has been trying to do this for years. And right now, I think they're only at 15% of the entire LA grid is available on like these, these battery capacitors. And while that may not sound like much, and it definitely isn't, uh, you have to remember how big LA is of a city and how massive that electric grid must be. And also LA is a city that never sleeps, right? LA is the kind of city that is almost a 24 seven type of city. So you need a lot of power <laughs> to keep things going at night. So having 15% is not as bad as it sounds. In addition to that, this has actually done a lot to alleviate blackouts within LA and the LA region is having these battery capacitors, but obviously hasn't completely resolved it. Anyway, my point here being is that even in the places where they are very focused on creating storage for green energy and creating battery capacitors, they are still very far behind that sort of vaunted 100% capacity storage. So that is the real issue that's holding us back. And this to me is why uh, battery technology is so interesting and so compelling. And it's something that people should know more about and talk more about and understand how it affects, you know, what we're trying to do in terms of transitioning to greener technology. Anyway, continuing, those sodium batteries generally have a shorter driving range than their lithium ion counterparts. They offer low cost electrification solutions where premium wise, an extra battery is not worth it. Still, research continues for a sodium ion battery that can provide enough range to attract drivers looking to buy a highway electric worthy vehicle. That day too is coming closer. Last week, Aragon National Laboratory provided an update on its sodium ion battery research. All things are looking very good. In the early 2000s, Aragon developed a cathode, which was set up by General Motors to launch the Chevy Volt Hybrid and the Chevy Volt EV. Uh, onto the road with lithium ion batteries on board and the lab is looking to outdo itself with sodium ion batteries. Sure enough, over at the Pacific Northwest Laboratory, another type of sodium battery is taking place, which deploys a combination of aluminum and sodium in the form of molten salt. That sounds dope. PNNL designed a new battery specifically to handle grid scale electric storage for solar arrays. This is what we were literally just talking about. As described by the labs, sodium, the sodium aluminum combo represents an improvement over grid scale sodium battery technologies. We showed this uh, new molten salt battery design to have the potential uh, to charge and discharge much faster than conventional high temperature sodium batteries. More to the point, the new sodium battery is aiming at storing energy for a period of 10 to 24 hours. Again, that's significant because you have to get through that if you're going to use solar at least. You have to get through the night. And then, of course, it's nice to have some sort of additional capacity in case it's cloudy or rainy or whatever, and you can't make the energy that you need from the sun for that day. A long story short here, the takeaway I want you guys to have is that lithium ion batteries are starting to have a real competitor. 
And the main thing about this competitor, and I think of this almost like, it's not so much uh, a huge, again, revolution in terms of what is available in terms of your electric power. That is where the solid state batteries, which we're getting closer and closer to uncovering that as well. And then I think that eventually this kind of a sodium battery will replace the older lithium ion batteries for like they talk about smaller vehicles that don't need to go on long distances. If you're just in a city or whatever, zipping around everywhere, something like this could be absolutely fantastic for you. So especially with this kind of stuff in its infancy, it's very conceivable that over the next few years, sodium batteries grow to not only compete with, but surpass traditional lithium ion batteries. And at that point, like I said, we start to really get to a much greener revolution in terms of green energy. Because like we talked about, one of the dirty secrets about these lithium ion batteries is their harm on the environment, particularly when it comes to when it's time to get rid of them. So ultimately what I see is that most people will have the choice and maybe if you're lucky, you'll have both types of vehicles. You'll have a, a low tier sodium, sodium ion uh, battery vehicle that can go like that couple hundred miles, which is like three to 400 kilometers, good for city driving and maybe some very short excursions. And then there'll be like the higher tier electric vehicles that have a solid state battery. Those can go for maybe a thousand miles eventually. Those will be the type of things that you need to maybe carry cargo on, take your family on a road trip, need to load up things, go on a longer trip. You have your high tier solid state battery electric vehicle they're available for you. But I can see in the future, you got something like a small electric vehicle that has only a couple hundred miles, maybe even less of range, but it's in a very affordable price range. Like you're talking like somewhere between seven grand to maybe a 10 grand type of thing. I think there would be a ton of people who would be extremely happy with that. A lot of people who live in big cities or for example, have a commuter vehicle, for example, like we have a system like we have big SUV and that's our road trip slash family vehicle. Then I have my little car, which is like our commuter vehicle that I take to work to and from work. So you have like your little commuter one, you got your big one. Anyway, the point here is that with this kind of technology being fleshed out, I do have a lot of hope, particularly for a, a real proliferation among a new budget tier of people who can get access to electric vehicles and even potentially people who couldn't get access to regular conventional, right? You could save up as a student and buy one of these smaller sodium ion vehicles. And that will take you all the way up through college, maybe into like your early thirties type of thing, right? And it'd be significantly less of an investment than what we have in terms of our current vehicles. So I think this stuff is very cool. Certainly worth interesting, certainly worth keeping an eye on and teasing out as time goes on. This is the kind of stuff that I like to talk to you guys about, particularly when it comes to our, our feel-good stories, because I do have a lot of hope. We do have some, we do talk about doomerism in terms of geopolitics, but in terms of like science and technology and innovation, those are the areas where I still have the most amount of hope. And uh, particularly when it comes to looking into green technologies, like a lot of people really narrow in when they think green technology they just think like solar panels and wind farms and that's it um, but there are so many other aspects connected to trying to make our technology greener anyway stuff like that is definitely where i see the most amount of hope 
particularly moving into trying to combat things like environmental catastrophe. And I'm that is actually like I talked about one of the areas that I'm most hopeful for is that we will be able to at least modify our technology in a way that we won't have to horribly diminish our standard of living in order to live a green life and to live more eco-friendly type of life. Anyway, with that, we have come to the end of our episode. So I want to thank you guys for watching. That's been to Comrades signing off for now. And until next week, don't know what we're actually going to talk about next week because nothing really exciting will be happening. We won't have a primary until next month. So I'll figure something out. <laughs> until then, you guys take care.